Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ireland A History is an Apollo Media production. Hello, and welcome to the Ireland A History podcast, the weekly podcast where we take a deep dive into Irish history from antiquity to the present. In the last episode, we discussed the early years of Charles I and how he very quickly got off to a rough start as King of England. He married the second choice wife, prorogued Parliament multiple times, and was faced with the financial burdens of many of his predecessors. They'd also made a habit of overspending, but in the calm of relative peacetime, the taxman had come to collect his due. While he was being hit with the death of his predecessors, Charles was by no means even generally competent as leader. Charles fell victim to having a vast amount of incompetence due to not having proper training to be a monarch on top of his own failings as a leader. This week, we will examine further failures by Charles to regain reign in control and stabilize the country that will eventually lead to a civil war. Now, what I think is worth noting, especially in the context of, of events that have happened since this episode started to be written, this part right here was added in later. Recording this episode actually just comes a day after the death of Elizabeth II and the announcement of Charles III as the new king of England. My feelings on the monarchy aside, I am American and I do host an Irish history podcast, so I don't really need to make my feelings clear. I did find myself joking a lot that it's funny that he chose the moniker of Charles when the first two Charleses were really, really bad leaders. And so maybe it's because the bar is already set low and he can't really disappoint people in that regard, but memory of how good a king and queen are tends to not last very long. So I just thought it was really funny that he chose that name. Regardless, I felt the recent news was worth noting before we dove into the podcast. And again, a little bit more of the housekeeping before we do jump into the podcast, I would like to explain why we've been so sparse on putting out episodes. We are in the process of migrating hosts from Buzzsprout to Spreaker, and this process has been a little bit more taxing and confusing than we desired originally. Uh, not to be like dramatic or anything, but we weren't exactly pleased with the quality of hosting that Buzzsprout has been up to in terms of they 
they were going to work a lot more with us in terms of ad revenue and stuff and hopefully actually bring in some uh, sponsors to the show. And they've been mums the word. And then when we went through a third-party ad company called Podcorn, Buzzsprout neglected to actually use our stats to help us win contracts. We were not unable to win contracts to advertise for the show. And then Buzzsprout also introduced another ad system in which it was going to be internal in which other podcasts that are hosted on Buzzsprout would be able to promote their shows. That just died. So mm -hmm. we have decided that all of these situations make it kind of a better situation for us to migrate to Spreaker. It's a little bit less user-friendly, but it's going to be a lot more upfront with how they're going to use our show. All of that out of the way, once the process is complete, the episodes will be fully back to normal and doing it weekly. It's just been kind of slow because there's been a lot of work in terms of migrating hosts. Now, thank you for sitting through that minor rant. I just wanted to explain to you and be as transparent as possible. There's a lot more that's going into it, but that's as transparent as I can be. Let's talk about Charles. So when we last left off, Charles was undertaking many campaigns to earn money back for the crown. This had extended to even these silly notions, such as forcing anyone who had made over 40 pounds annually and did not attend his coronation to pay the fine for not attending his coronation. And this was something that was done retroactively several years after he was coronated. Several of the people who had not been present had died since then, and so they had successors who could not have attended the coronation because they weren't the ones in power then, and yet they were still fined. This is going to be a part of a massive pattern in which Charles just doesn't get it. He will engage in multiple unpopular taxations on a country that up to this point had been among the least taxed in Europe. And... People everywhere, they kind of, there is this universal notion that no matter how little you are taxed, taxation is unpopular. And so regardless of how little they are being taxed, people will always feel that taxes are too high, especially when they get taxed more. It's just kind of a, a notion, I think. I, I don't, I've never heard of a society in which people aren't largely complaining about taxes. So... England is just going to continue this trend. Now, the next attempt by Charles in order to recoup some of the money came in the form of yet another medieval-era system of taxation called ship money. Now, ship money came in two ways. One way that ship money could be used was instead of using money to pay taxes during times of war, they could actually build ships and man said ships. And the idea was that in a time of war, money wasn't actually needed as much as just the production of military infrastructure, such as boats, troops, guns, etc. Charles saw this as a way, well, we're not kind of at war and we haven't really been doing anything, but I can still raise the taxes that would go to making the ships and they'll just come to me instead. This has always been an unpopular tax in England, but it is actually going to be even more unpopular. It was more unpopular than the uh, aforementioned pound and tonnage taxes that we talked about, in which uh, 
the weight of cargo was taxed by the king, this is going to actually be even more unpopular than that. This is for a couple of reasons. In times of war, the cities also have to sacrifice some of their population in order to have a crew for the ships. This will be a further tax on the city because you don't have people working in the factories. You don't have people working in, on the farms because they are now navally conscripted. The second reason why this is super unpopular is shipbuilding costs tend to far exceed the taxes that you would have to pay to begin with. Okay, so here's where Charles is going to make it really, really unpopular. This tax is originally for coastal towns, uh, towns that won't necessarily produce a lot of money in terms of farming, so they turn to being trading uh, cities. This is going to go away because Charles has decided it is in his best interest to extend this tax to inland cities. The way he sees it is because he isn't at war, those cities aren't paying the taxes that they would be paying uh, in the form of ship duties in a time of war. So they're making excess money, and that money should be going to him. Remember when I said Charles doesn't get it? This is exactly the point. He's going to hurt himself in the long run by demanding money in times of peace. So he passes this thing without Parliament, obviously, and it arouses fierce opposition across the country, especially among uh, inland lords. One of these people is a very wealthy businessman by the name of John Hampton from the, from the county of Buckinghamshire. The way John Hampton sees it is, why do I need to fund ships when I am an inland county? That should be an issue between coastal cities and the crown, not me. And so he refuses to pay. And he gets taken to, like, a civil court. It would be the equivalent of a civil court uh, in modern eras. And he is basically acting against the crown, and so the crown starts representing itself in the court. And there's this long legal battle in which 12 judges are brought forth to decide whether or not John Hampton has to pay it. It comes down to 7 to 5 in favor of the crown. This shows just how unpopular this method of gaining funds is and just how unpopular Charles is rapidly becoming because this is a guy who picks the judges himself, the king, and still only seven of them side with him. So it kind of shows that the public opinion of Charles is going against him. Another extremely unpopular uh, method Charles had to gain funds, and this is actually explicitly illegal by a number of statutes that have been passed before he was king and while he's king, was his granting of monopolies on goods. By giving a company the monopoly on a specific good, they can charge whatever fee they want, and they pay him the taxes that he demands. This actually proves very inefficient because... It doesn't actually earn him a lot of money because monopolies just tend to centralize the money rather than trickle up like he wants it to. And But he earns enough that he continues granting these monopoly charters, something that will be very hard to get rid of further down the line. It's opening a can of worms that's hard to stuff back in. Another thing he does is he seizes a lot of land 
in Scotland that had been granted since 1540 and restores boundaries uh, to medieval era boundaries and decides that any of those who are now within those boundaries and using that land are going to be fined for using this land. This once again creates a strong amount of anger at Charles and this time in Scotland. And so by 1640, despite all the, the ways that he is trying to recoup money, he is facing both bankruptcy and the prospect of war. So, how could Charles screw this up any further, you might ask? Well, we haven't even begun to talk about religion. And it will be religion that actually provides a huge backdrop for this eventual English Civil War. Although, we would be remiss if we don't explain that it is actually multiple wars. There are lulls in peace. I believe there are a total of three civil wars during Charles's reign. And it's a lot of die off, a little bit of a treaty, and then you'll have a re-escalation, so to speak. And so it is only after Charles loses three wars that he will finally be seen as someone who needs to be executed. Religion is very complicated under Charles because he's both ambiguous about his religious stance, but he's also very strict in his dealing with it. His wife was Catholic, and he enjoyed the teachings of what were called Armenians. Uh, not like the country at all, they are a, a weird offshoot of Protestantism in which they had their own ways of, of dealing with sacraments and stuff. I don't, I don't know who the modern-day descendants of Armenians were, would be. Uh, I have not actually done a whole lot of research into the Armenian movement themselves for honestly the sake of time, but I do know that their main enemy is the Puritans, who we have talked about with uh, the establishment of colonies at Jamestown, etc. And we did talk a, a little bit about their conflict with Armenians last episode. Now Charles further angers the Protestants and the Puritans, by continuing his diplomacy with Spain, he sees Spain, because of a lot of their overseas empires, as a great source of money. And so he's very friendly and cordial with Spain and doesn't fully aid uh, the Thirty Years' War's Protestant combatants. This really, really upsets a lot of the Protestants within England who do think they should be involved in the Thirty Years' War, because Scotland is very much involved. They have been sending volunteers the entire time, mm -hmm. and they have been aiding their prospective sides, which, ironically, um, is both the Catholic and uh, and Protestant sides. Think of the Scotland as basically providing mercenaries to both sides, because there is still a very strong Catholic base in Ireland, or sorry, Scotland, but they are not the ones in power. So it will be. The official assistance that Scotland is sending is the Protestant, but they but there are Catholics fighting for the Catholic side. Yes, it's very confusing and it's very convoluted. That is exactly what religious war always is. If you even trace back to like the Crusades, there are Christians fighting on the sides of the Muslims. There are Jews fighting on the sides of the Muslims. There are there are Muslims fighting on the sides of the Christians, and and it's all over because. Religious wars tend to not be so much about war and more about money that can be gained from war. Uh, that is why the Crusades have often been very strongly mislabeled as religious wars when they are actually economic conflicts. And 
kind of a whole deal of bragging about who gets to control Jerusalem. Anyways, that is me getting off topic. I'm explaining how complicated the Thirty Years' War really is. Now, Charles's religious problems become further complicated when he appoints William Laud as his Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, the way that Charles is starting to rule his kingdom is he is ruling by the efforts of strongmen. He's surrounding himself with people who are going to be both yes-men and strong fists uh, for actually establishing how he wants. Uh, William Laud will be no different. He will use this on the religious side. He goes to great effort to uniformize religion in the realm by punishing nonconformists. Now, what's what's complicated about this is they, they establish what's called the, the English Book of Prayer, and this is something that they will try to force upon Scotland. But the problem is, is because Charles hasn't really outlined what he sees as religious uh, uniformity, nobody actually knows what the uniformity is supposed to be. And so rather than create a lot of conflict, it creates a lot of confusion as well. And so a lot of people are getting punished by the courts, which is how uh, the the, can the Archbishop of Canterbury is uh, wielding his power as he's using courts to go after nonconformists. But nobody knows how they're supposed to... Uh, how they're supposed to approach the Anglican religion. So there's a lot of confusion in that regard. And so people are being punished, not necessarily because they're resisting, but because they don't know how to actually conform. And so Charles makes enemies just simply through confusion because he isn't very good at communicating how he wants to rule. He wants to be both loose, but also be strict in establishing said looseness. So there is a lot of arguments that are going into this. Do you remember when we just talked? Well, I say just talked. A few minutes ago, we talked about how Charles angered a lot of Scotland by confiscating historic lands. That's about to rear its ugly head further. Because when he had been, while he had been born in Scotland, he was English in every discernible way. He belonged to the Anglican Church rather than the Church of Scotland, which is a reformed church, but not in the same regard as the Church of England. In fact, to this day, there is a church, separate Church of Scotland from the Anglican Church. And while they had been moving away from Catholicism, they weren't as aggressive about it as England was, and they kept some sacraments, as you would say, whereas the English had completely done away with it. Now, Charles angers them more, but because when he is coronated as King of Scotland, this is a this is usually done according to Scottish tradition. He decides it's going to be done according to Anglican tradition. This would normally anger a lot of the traditional Church of Scotland members, but it's actually not that that really upsets them. It's the fact that he orders them to adopt the English Book of Prayer and a lot of other Anglican sacraments without ever once approaching the separate Scottish Parliament that has been going on while the English Parliament has been prorogued. This is seen as an absolute act of tyranny because why do we even have a Parliament if he's not even going to consult them and force things upon us? Uh, it also is seen as this forced adoption of the Anglican Church among many Scots, something they don't accept in the slightest. 
they really don't like that this what they see is essentially a foreign king forcing himself upon them. In response, many of the high-ranking leaders in Scotland, including among the Church of Scotland, sign a national covenant that refuses to recognize any religious reform that doesn't come directly from the Scottish Parliament and therefore from the Church of Scotland. This idea of separation of church and state will not come up until much, much later. And so the Church of Scotland has a lot of position within the Parliament. And the leadership within the Church of Scotland makes this position clear in 1638 when they formally reject mm -hmm. all of the king's reforms. As expected, Charles did not respond well to this. He perceives the stance as an outright declaration of war. He does not bother consulting his own parliament, not that there was one to begin with, because remember, he keeps dis uh, dismissing it, and summons an army to go put the Scottish Covenanters in their place and reassert the Anglican Church in charge. Initially, what's funny is he's trying to put the Covenant in their place, but he knows he cannot beat them in battle because they are A, much better trained, and have much more soldiers. Because, as I say, they've been fighting in wars, so they're very seasoned. He has just a bunch of people that he's summoned. Conscripts, people who've never held a blade before. So he just doesn't even fight them. He just decides he's going to stave them off temporarily by signing a treaty at Berwick. That gave him control of Scotland's fortresses and dissolved this small kind of government that the Covenant had put in place. But he only accomplished this by conceding to the demands of Scottish Parliament and the Church of Scotland. This failure actually exposes the weakness of Charles uh, that he has without having the backing of his Parliament. This also kind of goes forward when we are talking about his international diplomacy because he has a diplomatic crisis in which Spain wants his help because he's been demanding money from them. Well, essentially asking for money from them. But he also doesn't aid them when their fleet is completely sunk right next to uh, the English fleet by the Dutch kingdom of the Platinate. The Platinate being um, the kingdom essentially that his wife comes from. And so, uh, it's weird because his wife is uh, not actually Palatinate, but he has many relatives within the Palatinate that are also connected through her relatives. And so, it is with this event that the First Bishop's War has begun. Uh, Charles decides that, you know what, we're going to reconvene Parliament. They've had enough time to stew in their anger and get over it, and now they're going to listen. So he reconvenes both the Irish Parliament and the English Parliament. Now, Charles is smart with the Irish Parliament and kind of just spams them with Irish-friendly lords, and he basically makes it so the actual Irish people can't run their own lords, so it's just crown-friendly lords that are running in this Parliament. And lo and behold, they actually pledge a certain amount of money to Charles, and an army of 9,000 troops, which, if you're thinking about the population of Ireland back then, is actually a substantial amount of troops. Ironically, at home, Charles fares much, much worse. Because he doesn't have the control over England like he does with Ireland, 
the crown favorite candidates lose most of their elections and it forces a stalemate between the crown and parliament. Now, some of the members of parliament, like the Earl of Northumberland, are a lot more diplomatic and they try to reach a compromise such as repealing the ship money clause in exchange for 650,000 pounds for a war project projected to cost more than a million pounds. Parliament doesn't really agree to this. They don't really like this compromise because A, it won't match the cost of war, so it'll just throw us more in debt. And Charles isn't listening to any of our demands for parliamentary reform, such as giving Parliament more power. Now, by us mentioning Parliament, we are specifically talking about the House of Commons, because Charles will listen to the House of Lords, he just won't listen to the House of Commons, which is where actual change happens. It always has, and to this day, whole legislation cannot get passed without the House of Commons. So, unable to get the results he wants, Charles actually dissolves what became known as the Short Parliament, angering members of the House of Lords, such as the Earl of Northumberland. Now, we discussed how Ireland had pledged its support, and you might be thinking that's kind of crazy, given the recent history between Ireland and England, but this is because Charles essentially has mob boss enforcer type, that is the Earl of Strafford, who is also the Lord Deputy of Ireland. It can be reasonably assumed he was forcing some arms in terms of getting Irish support for the Crown's actions. It also doesn't hurt that Irish are just not allowed to run in these elections, so it's just English lords who are taking up the Irish Parliament. Now, the Earl of Strafford will be very important for the next few years because he acts as the muscle of the crown and works closely with the archbishop to help stamp out any anti-government movements, which is kind of funny because when Charles was named king, the Earl of Strafford was actually one of his strongest enemies, but he kind of realized the value that he could gain by, by being one of the king's few allies, switches sides, and becomes this real top dog to the crown. Now, in all of this confusion, the Covenant forces in Scotland assembled, and they start marching south into Northumberland. Both the Earl of Northumberland and the Earl of Strafford were dealing with illnesses that greatly weakened. The Earl of Northumberland couldn't even get out of bed due to his illnesses, and the Earl of Strafford was dealing with gout, but he decided, no, I'll, I'll still lead the forces, and so he does. The first battle actually occurs in the county of Durham at the city of Newcastle-Pontine. Now, before getting into like a huge discussion over how important Newcastle-Pontine is, it is a vast shipbuilding city, and it is very important to the English crown, but the English soldiers, as we had discussed, were completely unprepared. They had no training, and were facing against much larger numbers and much larger and much better forces, and they get defeated. And so all of Durham and the city of Newcastle become occupied. This intense military failure and very public military failure, I might add, forces Charles to summon trusted lords to strategize what to do next. They universally told him, you have to reconvene Parliament. There's nothing that will happen until we do that. So he realizes he has no choice. And honestly, by the time he had summoned his lords, he knew that this is what he had to do. Voters did not forget, though. And they once again showed their dissatisfaction by overwhelmingly voting in anti-royalist MPs. Out of 400 and 
90 something MPs, 350 of them were anti-royalist. This event creates the start of the long parliament and the stage will be formally set for a future showdown between anti-royalists and royalists. We'll be calling them something else when the war breaks out, but anti-royalists and royalists is where we will start. And that is where today's episode comes to an end. It was a bit of a long one because I really wanted to get all the way to the long parliament, but I did not want to leave out any essential details when talking about Charles's failures. And so next week we will discuss the long parliament, the Irish rebellion, and finally set the stage for a long breakdown of the English Civil War. I believe that the English Civil Wars we will break up between the wars themselves, and we will spend one final episode of the season talking about Oliver Cromwell. And so I think when all said is done, we will have about five, six more episodes in the season. We will take a break in the break in the season, and then we will come back and talk about Cromwell's actions in Ireland, and that will be the kickoff of season three. Now, thank you as always for joining. I'm trying to be as transparent as possible for how we are going forward, so that's why I've outlined the next few episodes. And thank you for remaining patient during our own era of instability. I kind of understand what Charles is going through. Now, onto what I have been up to in the past few weeks since I got back from England. Uh, last week I just picked up the Stephen King book, End of Watch, and I'm really excited to dive into it. I've only read one Stephen King book, and it's vastly different from most of his books I read Under the Dome. So, you know, I'm, I'm kind of excited to actually read some Stephen King. I've also begun reading a Pulitzer Prize winning book about Cleopatra. The name of the author escapes me and I feel really bad. Oh, I, it's on my desk. Uh, her name is Stacy Schiff. And honestly, the reason why I picked it up, I was at Half Price Books and it said it was a Pulitzer Prize winner. And I said, well, you know, uh, I just finished a Pulitzer Prize winning book on Cuba. That was incredible. So I hope this one's just as good. In terms of listening, I have recently picked up the problematic habit of playing golf. I go to a course about three or four times a week just to kind of get out of the house and enjoy the remaining summer and hopefully I'll be enjoying fall playing golf. And I have been listening to the Discworld novels on Audible while I play, so that's been fun. In terms of watching TV, my girlfriend has actually never seen Game of Thrones, so I am re-watching that with her and I am enjoying watching her first reactions to that show. I have also been watching House of the Dragon without her uh, because obviously she hasn't seen Game of Thrones and really enjoying House of the Dragon. I am also going to start watching Rings of Power. I was going to wait till there were more than two episodes out. I've heard really mixed reactions. I watched like the first 30 minutes of the first episode. It was pretty good to me. I'm not going to get too complainy because I get that it's a different director and all that. So I do like the spirit of Tolkien. I think that there is a good spirit of Tolkien being shown. Obviously, I'm not as well-versed with Tolkien lore as a lot of people, so I I don't. I can't really weigh into some of the criticisms. I was enjoying it, but I was kind of going in kind of blind, so we'll see going forward. And that's everything I have. Until next week, goodbye, and thank you for tuning in. Take care.